0: Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. Okay team, believe it or not, this is actually the last episode. Both in our series on Calvinism for cool kids and for this very first season of the Clearer Thinking Podcast. You know, it's hard to believe, but we have now produced... 37 episodes of our little show this past year, and it's been a lot of fun sharing sharing them with you. Now, last time, uh, when we were uh, tiptoeing through TULIP, we talked about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints, right? This is the last of the doctrines in TULIP. Uh, P, obviously, stands for perseverance of the saints. And we said... That it teaches that God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts, man. That's a tremendous comfort to us in our weakness, in our tough times, in our lives, uh, and even in the lives of uh, people that we love. Uh, as we see maybe their faith waver, uh, we see them struggling with their relationship with Christ. Uh, if they are truly part of his family, they will persevere. That is That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and it is super comforting. Uh, But before we leave this subject and leave uh, the five points of Calvinism altogether for a while anyway, um, we have to address what I think is a fair objection, and it's this. What do we do with Bible passages that suggest that we can lose our salvation, that we can fall away from our faith, as it were? And one of those passages, probably the most famous passage on this subject, actually, is Hebrews chapter six, verses four through 10, especially verses four through six. It is a tough passage. It's a difficult passage and it's a confusing passage. Listen to what it says. This is, I'm just going to read verses four through six. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, it sounds, you listen to that, you think, well, it sounds like you can leave the faith. You can be a Christian at one point in your life, And then in another, you're no longer a Christian. And it's a it's a scary, it's kind of a scary passage. It says some hard things. And maybe as you're listening to it, you're wondering, hey, uh, do I fit the description in there? Is this about me? There's a famous uh, preacher from the 20th century, a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he once said that this is one of the most dangerous passages in the Bible. Not so much because it's hard to understand, which it is. But because of the havoc it has wreaked on sensitive consciences, uh, there are people who, who read this. You know, it seems to describe the what's called the unpardonable sin. It says that it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance after falling away. And people read that and they wonder, well, what is that sin? What's the unpardonable sin? A sin that you can't come back from if you've committed it. And then they wonder, well, have I committed it? Does that mean that I'm damned? So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 10, and hopefully there'll be two results by the end of it. We'll see how uh, what it teaches fits into the scheme of the perseverance of the saints, and then also hopefully it's going to quiet the conscience of sensitive Christians who, who fear that maybe they have somehow committed the unpardonable sin. So, there's four things I, I want to show you from this passage. I know this sounds like a sermon uh, <laughs> with its points, but that might be helpful for, as a roadmap through it. Uh, we're going to see who it's describing, what's happened to them, what it's not saying, and what we should do because of it. So, first of all, who is this passage describing? Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, And it's helpful to understand the context. So Hebrews was written by a pastor to a specific congregation. Uh, And the author, we don't know who it was, but he may have been the pastor of this church, which was a church of mainly Jewish converts to Christianity. And so these Christians, they were under big time pressure to abandon their faith in Jesus. Uh, And they were even facing persecution for it. Uh, They were thinking about going back to Judaism, and they were trying, they were considering trying to see themselves as God's people without Jesus. And so the letter to the Hebrews in the last five chapters, well, for the first five chapters, I should say, for chapters one through five, the author is showing the superiority of Jesus over everything in the Old Testament, so he's saying Jesus is better than the angels and better than Moses and better than Aaron and the high priests. And um, in the second half of the letter, he's going to go on and show that Jesus is better than sacrifices and better than the tabernacle, etc. But then right here in the middle, he hits these people that are reading this. He hits them with this warning. And it's in that context, the context, listen, the context of thinking about leaving Jesus, it's within that context that he warns them. And what does he say? In verses four and five, he lists five things. And he says, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, that's the one thing, who have tasted the heavenly gift, number two, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, Number three, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Number four, and the powers of the coming age. Number five, now that, that is quite a list, isn't it? <laughs> and the question is, what does he mean by that list? And what he's doing is he's describing those who by every conceivable indication are Christians. They have been enlightened they look like they understand the gospel. They have tasted heavenly gifts. Some say that that's a reference to the uh, Lord's Supper, but it's it's actually probably a reference to experiencing God's grace, the gift of grace in their lives somehow. It says they've shared in the Holy Spirit, which means probably um, they had even shown spiritual gifts and used them. It says that they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. That is you know, the promises that the Bible lays out before us, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of new life, the promise of a resurrection at the end of the day, at the the end of the age. And then amazingly, it also says that they've experienced the powers of the coming age, which is probably a reference to miraculous signs and wonders. And so the point is, this author is describing people who for all intents and purposes seem to be believers. They've made a profession of faith. They've been baptized. Um, perhaps they've even risen up in leadership. They, they've learned the Bible. They've been active in church. They look like they understand the gospel. They sit alongside true Christians in the church, maybe even for years, and they seem the same on the surface, at least for a while. Okay, so that's who it's describing. Now, something happens to them, though. It says in verse 6 that they fall away. It says, and who have fallen away? Now, when you and I think of fall away, we might think of some kind of involuntary thing. You know, uh, most people don't choose to fall, right? They trip, they get pushed. Maybe they're holding on to something for dear life and they lose the strength and they lose their grip and they fall. So when we read this, they fell away, we might think that, you know, something happened to them. They had a bad experience with church, maybe uh, they've been turned off to religion because they've been hurt deeply by someone or some community. And you do hear those kinds of stories that that kind of thing does happen. But that's not what the author is saying in the passage. Remember the context. These are Jewish Christians thinking about returning to Judaism. And the word here for fall away, it doesn't mean slip or stumble. It's not involuntary or accidental. It actually means a calculated, deliberate act of renouncing God and the faith. And, and specifically renouncing Jesus. Okay? Remember, these are Jewish Christians thinking of repudiating Christ and going back to Judaism. But but here's the thing. They can't go back to Judaism without saying either implicitly or explicitly, I don't need Jesus to have fellowship with God and have eternal life. They think that they can still have God without having Jesus. And so if they were to do that, if they were to try to have God without having Jesus, they're rejecting Christ's necessity. They're saying to the Father, in effect, hey, you know, you you didn't need to crucify Jesus for me. I didn't need that. I can get along without it just fine. Thank you anyway. And it's precisely that kind of hard-heartedness against Jesus that the Father will not tolerate. See, you gotta understand, these are people who know exactly what they're rejecting. They, they had seen Jesus, maybe some of them even like personally with their own eyes. They had heard his testimony. They had been around Christians. They had been given Every opportunity. And yet, they rejected Christ. This is not because of a lack of understanding. They know exactly what they're doing. It's not a sin of ignorance, okay? It's a sin of deliberateness. That's why the author says in verse 6, They are crucifying the Son of God and subjecting him to public disgrace. In effect, they're aligning themselves with those who mocked Jesus at his crucifixion. Those people didn't think there was any need for Jesus to die for their sins either. That's who the author is describing. And you know, probably the best example of this, of course, is Judas himself. Judas, on the surface looked to be a true disciple. He had been with Jesus for three years. He had heard the gospel. He had understood it. He saw Jesus' miracles. He probably actually did some himself. You may remember Matthew 10 and Luke 9 both record the disciples being sent out with authority to heal and to cast out demons. Well, Judas was one of them. And so, some wonderful things may have happened through his ministry, and yet in the end, he rejected it all. And for that person, says the author to the Hebrews, repentance is impossible. To come so close to the truth and then to reject it, to taste God's goodness like that and then say, no, I don't want it. He says, you can't come back from that. And, and that's why in verses seven and eight, the author describes evidence of true faith, of living faith, of long lasting faith. And he describes them in the term, in terms of fruitfulness. Okay. It is very possible. This is such an important lesson to remember, guys. It is very possible to have gifts, even spiritual gifts, but not have fruit. Yeah, it is. Look at Saul in the Old Testament. He had the gift of prophecy. There was a proverb that went around that said, is Saul among the prophets? So Saul had gifts, and yet the spirit was taken from him. And even Jesus says that at the last day, some will come to him and say, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. This is hugely important, okay? God looks for fruit, not for gifts, as evidence of faith. God looks for fruit, not for gifts, as evidence of faith. You know, a very powerful and tragic, frankly, cautionary tale on this front is is the story of Ravi Zacharias. You know, when news of his sexual immorality broke, people were, uh, they were devastated by it. I, I was one of them, in fact. I mean, thousands of people have been blessed by his books and his talks and his sermons, including me. And there are many people who would say that they came to the Christian faith. They became Christians because of this man's ministry. And then all this stuff comes out about him as a sexual predator. And and people start to wonder about whether their conversion is real or not. And they think, how can this be? And it's because sometimes we confuse gifting with fruit. God used Ravi Zacharias's gifts to bear fruit in people's lives. But they were other people's lives. He could still be fruitless, even in the midst of all of that. Now, the question becomes then, was that person ever saved? That's what we want to know, right? Hebrews 6, Ravi Zacharias, were they ever saved? Well, point three is what Hebrews is not saying, (laughs) And let me just say, first of all, look, you and I cannot know what's in people's hearts. People who look in every way to be a believer and then reject it, um, they shock us. They shock us because they we're fooled, right? But then, you know, there are also people who don't look very regenerate, frankly, and it turns out that they are. And we can't read those hearts. God alone sees things clearly as they really are, which is why, obviously, he can foreknow and predestine and call and justify and glorify the elect, which he does. So, what is Hebrews not saying? Hebrews is not saying that true believers can lose their faith. And the way we know that is actually by going to another passage to get a little bit of help. In 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19, We read something very closely connected to what's going on in Hebrews. John says, Dear children, this is John, 1 John 2, 18 and 19. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. John is talking about a group that has left the congregation. Uh, These were people who had repudiated Jesus Christ. Antichrists are people who teach something in place of Christ, Anti. Christ okay they preach and teach a salvation apart from Christ not necessarily against Jesus explicitly but certainly implicitly and in doing so they show something about themselves says John they show that they don't belong to us in fact they never did John doesn't say you know they started out among us and then they left us He's not saying they were in a state of grace and then they left that state of grace. No. He says that by their actions, they prove, they demonstrate that they were never believers at all. His argument is that if they, they were believers, if they belonged to us, then they would have stayed with us. <laughs> they would have stayed part of the church, part of the community of faith. But because they left, they give evidence that they never really belong to the community of faith in the first place. And notice, it's not until after they've left that you can know that they didn't belong. So you can't look around at the church and try to discern, hmm, who really belongs and who doesn't really belong. Those who don't really belong, they will give evidence of that fact themselves eventually. The purpose of the departure of these antichrists is to make plain who's truly a follower of Jesus and who's not. Paul says actually something similar in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, when he says, There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Hear that? It's not just an issue in John, but it's an issue in Paul as well. So a true believer cannot turn her back on Jesus. A person who knowingly rejects Jesus was never a true believer at all. Phew, okay. Complicated stuff. Last point. This is the longest podcast of the season, I think. Um, And it's a toughie, I know. Here's the last point. What do we do with all about this teaching? Like, how do we apply? How should we apply this? First of all, You should apply this teaching primarily to yourself, not to others. You know, the author is talking to people who are there. He's not talking to the people who are not there. He gives this warning to the church. So this is a call to self-examination. Do you believe in Christ as the Son of God? Is he necessary for your salvation? When you think of his dying on the cross, do you think of that dying for you? Being specifically for you. Do you take it personally? Do you trust in his saving work on the cross for you? Or have you been trusting in other things? Now, of course, to some degree, we're all trusting in other things. And so this text is like a splash of cold water, water on our face. It's like the author saying, Hey, wake up, have a look at yourself, especially in times of trial, hardship. Don't give up. And even, you know, when things are going really well, that's often a time when your heart is wooed away from your first love. Don't go down that path. Renew your commitment to Christ. Fortify your faith in Him. And yet, I know that some of you can't help but think of others. I I can't help but think of others. That family member, that friend, that colleague, you're worried because it looks like they fit the author's description. You know, they they grew up in church and they wandered away. We say wandered away as though it's an accident, but it never really is. They once once at one time seemed like they were on fire and now they don't really want anything to do with the church. They don't really want anything to do with Jesus it seems. And so you read this passage and you cannot help but wonder, are they lost forever? I mean, the passage says it is impossible that they would be brought back to repentance. That is a terrifying prospect, and it is. And I wish I could say, don't worry. Don't worry. God will bring them back. It's only a matter of time. But I can't say that. Because I don't know that. But at the same time, you don't know that either. You don't know if your child is the poster child of Hebrews 6 or an example of the prodigal son you can't know and frankly you should stop trying to figure it out stop trying to be like God the only one who can actually discern any human heart and you might say well that's easy for you to say and you're right it is it it is easy for me to say but it's still something you gotta do so how do you do it well In verse 10 of the passage, it says, God is not unjust. God is not unjust. You need to cling to this truth. God is not unjust. He always chooses what is right, what is true, what is good. Whatever he does is good, always. That's the first thing you need to do. Remind yourself of that. The the second thing you need to do is you need to take this text to heart. The issue here is what do you make of Jesus? Too often, listen, when we deal with wayward, wandering children, we're thinking about their behavior almost entirely. Um, we're worried about their partying, they're getting smashed, and their bad language, and they're smoking up, and they're sleeping around, and I do not want to diminish the seriousness of behavior, Okay. Those are sins. No doubt about it. But the author doesn't focus actually on any of that. He focuses on Jesus. Remember, Jesus alone saves. They were in danger of believing that they could be right with God in any way other than faith in Christ. That's the danger. And so, in our interaction with people who seem to have fallen away or walked away, however you want to describe it, even our loved ones, we need to focus on Jesus. Not on church attendance or Bible studies or avoiding behaviors like sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We need to focus on the gospel and on the cross and on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And trust that That God is at work in the lives of the people we love on his timing, according to his agenda and according to his timing. He is at work in the people that we love. And as we continue to point to Jesus, our prayer should be to see them love Jesus like we do. Let me, let me just close with this quote from Jude. You know, Jude, that really short book near the end of the Bible. The last two verses go like this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Well, gang... That is it for our little series, Calvinism for Cool Kids. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned a thing or two. This is also the end of season one of the Clearer Thinking podcast. I hope that it's been useful for you and beneficial for you. It has been for me, certainly, to produce these things and to write them and to think about them and then to, to record them. It's been a, a great pleasure for me. And uh, I hope you have a fantastic summer. Uh, I'm going to spend a fair amount of time this summer thinking about what's next for the Clear Thinking podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again in the fall. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.